There's something I think really quite um, beautiful and powerful about uh, doing something like chanting the refuges and precepts together in that way. There's a power to to giving voice to this uh, this commitment to observing the precepts, to living as carefully, as harmlessly as possible, you know, undertaking this as a training, as a uh, commitment to a way of life. And, you know, it's such a, it's, it can seem kind of formulaic or ritualistic. We do it a lot, perhaps. But to really think about the power of, of this in the world, you know, if, if everyone made that determination and, and really tried even a little bit <laughs> to live that way, we would have a golden age in the world. Everything would be so radically and dramatically changed if that were true. It wouldn't, even if they weren't even very good at it, but made the attempt, it would be huge. And so it's no small thing to, to do this, to undertake this training. And, and you know, the last line when we chant together, the idam me silam, magapala nyanasa, may this, this um, sila of mine be the support, be the condition, be the cause for my realization of the highest peace. And this is a beautiful aspiration and it points to the, um, the power of sila as, as a foundation for our practice and for this realization. And voicing it, I think, in the Pali language is powerful in its way too. You know, this language exists because of these teachings from the Buddha. It's not a spoken language anywhere. It comes to us over the centuries through people doing things like repeating this chant and memorizing the suttas. And so there's a power just in that, that language, the Pali language. Our path and, and practice, there's a way, it's described in, in many different ways. One way that it's referred to, that's described, is in terms of uh, the ripening, perfecting of what are called the paramis, paramita in Sanskrit. Um, these are ten, in the Theravada tradition, this is a list of ten beautiful, noble qualities of mind, of heart. And it's said that these were perfected, developed and perfected by the Buddha over countless lifetimes in his lifetimes as the bodhisattva, bodhisattva. Um, and there's stories of, of his past lives and the Jataka tales is mainly where we find these stories in the Buddha being born as an animal or a prince or a, a whatever, a lot of animals. And these teaching fables and he's, he's working on, on these uh, paramis, these beautiful qualities I'll read the list of them. I know that's very familiar to, to all of you um, to some extent, but sometimes we, it's nice to hear the list. You know, we may not remember all of the, the uh, qualities, these qualities of the paramis. So the first one is dana, or generosity, sila, this ethical conduct, virtue that we practice by taking the precepts. Nekama is renunciation. Panya, wisdom. Virya, energy, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana, 
resolve, determination, metta, loving-kindness, and upeka, equanimity. And so you could say that, that the culmination of the path, one way to look at that, is, is, is the perfection of these qualities, that they're fully developed. In essence, you could say it's, it's, it's a situation where the, when the mind and the heart are no longer under the sway of the forces of, of delusion, of, of greed, of uh, hatred and confusion, then these paramis, then this is the natural response to life when we don't relate to the world through these habitual patterns of reactivity, of grasping, of pushing away, of confusion. And so our practice can be seen as, as the strengthening and cultivation of these. And, and this is especially common way of holding the practice in Asia, I think. And I've, I spend a lot of time in, in Burma, especially in Thailand, Burma, India, and in Burma especially, um, the practice is a lot of the time it's referred to in this way, related to. People talk about uh, the ripening of parami as a way of describing the path. You could say, in other words, you could say that what we're doing by cultivating these wholesome, beautiful qualities is we're choosing those things that lead to greater happiness, to peace, to freedom in our lives and abandoning, conversely abandoning, that which leads to suffering, which leads to unhappiness, which leads to conflict, confusion. And there's a beautiful circular kind of relationship that uh, is a natural part of this process because as we pay attention and live carefully and cultivate these wholesome qualities, then we make wiser choices and this leads to greater happiness and ease in our lives, in the world. And then these wiser choices, as we pay more attention in this way, then this becomes more refined and subtle. It leads to even greater freedom, wiser choices, more peace, more ease, and moving more and more towards freedom in this natural spiraling upwards that happens. This is a quotation from a, a teacher uh, in Burma named Sayada Ujotika. He said, freedom really means knowing what is useful, what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, and choosing that which is wholesome, good, and right, and then doing it wholeheartedly. Sometimes we hear a list like the, the list of the paramis that I read, and we, we can find it hard to relate to the idea of cultivating or perfecting these. And sometimes, you know, we'll see it as kind of a checklist of qualities that we may not have so much of, or see that we're lacking, we feel we're lacking in them, as though we're, we're born somehow with a certain amount, we're not going to measure up, and we'll be deficient in some way. That's just the way it is. But of course, you know, that's our hearts, our minds are, are malleable. Things do change. Nothing is static. There'd be no point in spending time on retreat if that weren't the case. And where we place the power of our attention and of our intention, where we bring that to bear, this has, has great power and, and really matters. And the Buddha placed great, great emphasis on the power of 
intention in the mind and the heart. And, and the whole path is predicated on the idea that, that we can change and grow, that things are not static and fixed. And we all have seen the power of this for ourselves in our own lives and practice in different ways. And through our practice, we are strengthening all of these wholesome, beautiful qualities. Sometimes it seems that one or another is more highlighted. But just by our willingness to show up in our practice, to begin again and again every time that we have to do that. I mean, that's, that's the whole of our practice in so many ways is this willingness to start again, isn't it? I mean, how many times today, for those of you who've been here all day, or just in your, in your practice life, in your meditation, have you had to start again? And that's kind of all it is. A lot of the time is, okay, I'm back. I'll start again right now. That willingness. We cultivate this, these good qualities through that. And by bringing the power of our attention, our intention to cultivating wisdom, love, and understanding. But we can overlook this part of the path sometimes, I think. You know, we get focused on, on trying to meditate, on, on doing our practice, a particular practice, technique, or trying to get concentration developed, for example. And we fail sometimes to notice all of the really beneficial, beautiful qualities that are getting strengthened, no matter what's going on. Patience and perseverance and energy, determination, resolve, just through this willingness to keep at it. And it's good to reflect on this, I think, especially there at those times when, when we, it's, it's not easy. The going gets rough and we find ourselves, our minds saying, well, what, what is going, what am I supposed to be doing here? What's this all about? What good is this doing, me or anyone else? And so to really reflect on these paramis in this way. The path is also described in another way as, as trainings, three trainings in, in dana, sila, and bhavana. It's another uh, way that the path is described as trainings in generosity, in ethical conduct, sila, and in mind development, bhavana, this is the meditation practices that we might do. And the Buddha said uh, to have taught this way, especially for lay people, for us, um, that he taught in this systematic way, dana sila bhavana. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting in, in uh, Buddhist countries, in Burma, for example, um, children are taught in this way from a very young age. This is a is held as a as a a way that that the training is done, and you see parents with very very young children. Um, they'll bring them out and and have them help to offer alms uh, to monks and to nuns when they're out collecting alms, or they'll they'll come and visit nunneries and monasteries, and and the very young children they'll have them come and and help do the offering very very directly. It's really lovely to see them training their children in in this way of making offerings. <clears throat> and so this practice of generosity, of giving, and, and, the, and of sila, that these are seen as, as the foundation 
you know, dana sila and then bhavana and then meditation. They're the foundation, the essential foundation that the practice rests on. And we could see this maybe easily in terms of, of sila, our ethical conduct, you know, and the precepts that we just chanted here. And we can see how leading a life of non-harming, that naturally this leads to a mind and heart that are free of remorse and worry. And that there's calm and tranquility and ease of heart that comes from that. When the mind is not uh, caught up in worry or regret. And so then our meditation does unfold and progress based on that ease and tranquility of mind and heart, and then clarity and understanding arising out of that. And there's a beautiful teaching in the Anguttara Nikaya, where the Buddha spoke very directly to this, and the way that sila functions as a foundation. In this particular teaching, um, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, has asked him this question. He's asked, what, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? And I won't read the entire thing, but this is a summary of what the Buddha replied to that question. He said, Hence, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. Joy has serenity as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness Happiness as concentration. Concentration as knowledge and vision of things as they really are, as its benefit and reward. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are has disenchantment and dispassion as its benefit and reward. Disenchantment and dispassion have the knowledge and vision of liberation as their benefit and reward. In this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the highest. I think this is just such a beautiful, simple teaching in that. It points so directly to this natural way that this would unfold for us. But it may be less obvious the way that how generosity might be seen as an essential foundation. You know, it's pretty clear with our conduct in that way. But why would generosity be seen as so essential as, as part of this foundation? upon which the practice rests. But if we think about it, the practice of generosity is is an expression, a very direct expression in the world of of non-greed, of non-holding on. It functions essentially as a, a direct and tangible counter to this force of clinging, of attachment in the mind and the heart. Excuse me. When we practice giving, we strengthen the wholesome factor of non greed. And this becomes a force for liberation in our lives. Through the practice of giving, our minds become less tight and fixated. They become more pliable, relaxed, flexible. And this is a great aid. We've all seen how minds that are relaxed, flexible, 
that this leads to ease in practice. Good things flow from that. And this goes to the heart of the teachings in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha's core teaching, that it's these, the forces of clinging, grasping in the mind and the heart, that this keeps us bound and leads to suffering. This is the heart of that teaching. And acts of generosity function very directly as an antidote to this habit, this uh, power of the mind, because we're learning to let go. We're practicing non-grasping, non-clinging in a very direct way when we practice generosity. And it tends to erode our self-cherishing habits of mind that may be there at times. We cultivate care, concern, interconnectedness with others. And we directly touch their lives with this practice. You know, our culture, so much of the culture that we live in here in the West, we tend to measure our, our feelings of self-worth really in some ways you could say our, the way we define ourselves in some ways is in terms of what we've managed to accumulate you know, our possessions in so many ways, our wealth. And maybe that's less true of, of those of us who might choose to spend time in places like this, but it's still it's powerful in the culture. And, and we have to, I think, really look and see how this works in our own lives. It's worth looking at because it is such a powerful force that we live in. And it's less frequently that our culture admires kindness and care and ger- generosity in this way that holds it as these in that same way. You know, they're, they're seen as qualities to admire in others, maybe in ourselves at times. But often, <clears throat> in, in some ways, the culture can sometimes see these as signs of weakness. You know, certainly in, in some areas of business, you know, there's a cutthroat quality in, in the world of business at times. And, you know, this idea of going for what you want at the expense of others and ambition and drive and, and even greed can be highly prized at times in the culture. You know, get what you want, go for what, go for yours, you know, put yourself first. These can be really held highly in high esteem in the culture. And it has its effect, I think, on all of us at times. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, what's, what's going to matter to any of us, to anyone, you know, will, will our stuff bring us happiness when it comes, when push comes to shove? Of course, none of us would say yes, but it's really worth looking at, at our lives in that regard. You know, where are we going to look for meeting? What are we going to remember as having been worth doing with our lives? Sometimes I think, you know, we hear a talk like this on, on the practice of generosity seems to be what it's about. And, and it can seem kind of basic, you know, Buddhism 101 or something. But, you know, Donna and Sila, these foundation practices, it's, it's not like we get that in place somehow and then, and then that's done and then we just, now we're, we're going to meditate, you know, that's all set and we're, we're okay with that. You know, it's, it's, they're constantly being refined and they're woven into the very fabric of our practice at, at every stage, every step of the way. 
It's worth looking at our relationship to these foundations. The Buddha spoke uh, of the power of generosity in many cases, many places in the suttas. Uh, This is a a famous quotation from the Itivuttaka. He said, if beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given nor would the stain of selfishness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. And that has a a poetic beauty to it. But there's also a a powerful statement about, about this practice. You know, even if it was your last mouthful, to offer a bit of that, to share in that way. And it's this movement of heart. Maybe we don't take it so necessarily literally. But it's very powerful to think of, you know, even if you were down to your last bit, last morsel, to make an offering, to have that, that quality of heart. <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, in in uh, Asia over the years, especially in Burma and uh, Thailand and India. And I've been helping with a retreat in Upper Burma at a monastery called Chaswa Monastery. It's in the Sagaing Hills of Upper Burma. Some of you have been there uh, to Burma. I know some of you have, well, maybe, I'm not sure. Anyway, may have been there. Beautiful part of that country, kind of the heart of of practice in many ways, the Sagaing Hills in Upper Burma. And I've lived, uh, I trained and lived as a monk for a time in Burma as well, and I've spent time on pilgrimage in the Buddhist, to the Buddhist sites in India. And there's a way that the practice of generosity really permeates the culture in, uh, in Buddhist countries that we don't see it in quite the same way in the West. It's, it's lovely and inspiring, I have found, to be around the energy of that. And it's not to say that there's not generosity here in this country. Of course there is, and there are abundant examples of that. And uh, you just look at the huge outpouring of, of relief aid that comes out of this country, for example, uh, in times of natural disaster. You know, people are so generous in that way. And all these foundations and humanitarian aid organizations and uh, huge philanthropy and volunteerism that takes place in in this country you know so it's it's not that there's not generosity here but it's held in a different way usually here it's it is this kind of philanthropic or volunteer kinds of work but in in the buddhist countries it tends to be held and in um, and looked at in terms of of the way that it functions as a foundation for the path of practice and in terms of the merit, the meritorious benefit of these kinds of practices. And the Pali word for merit is punya, idam me punyam, may this merit in, this, in the chanting we did, idam me punyam, punya. And it's a real central concept in the teachings of the Buddha that I think gets understood a lot in the West. I know for myself, when I first heard about 
this merit. I, I didn't want really anything to do with it, actually. I, it was the first time I really heard about, heard merit talked about much. I, was, I had volunteered to take care of a group of monks who were spending um, the rains retreat. It was, um, for those of you who know the Abayagiri Monastery in California, it was the. It was before it, it got started. I was helping to take care of Ajahn Amaro. Some of you may know him, and and three other monks who were spending the rains retreat in Northern California. And they, I helped to set up a place for them to stay and um, took care of them during uh, the rains time. And it was actually during that year, in 1995, that the the land for Abayagiri was donated to the Sangha there. And someone said, you know, and I put a lot of work, you know, I had to put in plumbing and make a kitchen and all kinds of stuff. It was a big job. And someone said, oh, there's such great merit in this offering for you to do this. And and I just, my understanding of it, I thought, no, no, I, you know, I'm not doing this for some reward or, you know, it, I was holding it as though my motivation was, was some celestial bank account or, you know, some some way of of holding it that way, it was that I, I just didn't understand what what uh, this idea of merit was, and I didn't want anything to do with it. But if we really understand this quality or idea of, of meritorious, the meritorious nature of our wholesome actions, it, we see that it's it's the acknowledging that that these good deeds, these skillful actions, that they have a power in the world, in our lives, that extends beyond the, the time and the scope of, of any action we might do, of the deed itself. And it's just acknowledging it, the fact that wholesome actions bring good results, wholesome beneficial results. That this is a natural law. It's, it's, and that these, this goodness informs the present moment and it extends beyond that. It's really an understanding of the law of karma. That, that good, wholesome actions do bring positive, beneficial results. And as, par- and <clears throat> as part of this understanding, there's, there's the understanding that, that this merit, this goodness, can be dedicated in the way that we did in the chanting. We dedicate this merit to our liberation, and we can dedicate dedicate it to the welfare and liberation of ourselves and all beings. And so it doesn't imply that we undertake practices like generosity because we expect something in return, but it's an acknowledgement and, and really I think a delighting in the goodness of, of our wholesome actions, acknowledging their goodness, delighting in that. And then this conscious dedication of this good energy, this wholesome, beneficial energy for ourselves, for the liberation, the welfare, the benefit of all beings. And when we dedicate this merit, and if we do it by bringing to mind our highest aspiration, for example, this idam me punyam maga palanyanasa, may it be the support, the condition for the realization of path and fruition, this highest teaching support and condition for our realization of Nibbana. And then we dedicate this 
then we connect to all beings in a beautiful way. We offer that our practice be for the benefit of all, connecting to our deepest and highest wishes for ourselves and for others. And this kind of dedication, this has become very powerful and important more and more for me over the years in my practice. When this offering, this generosity of heart flows from a connection to our own highest aspirations and our wishes for the, the well-being, the liberation of others, we see it's this natural expression of love, of, of kindness, of metta in the world. And when this is strong and in our hearts and minds, it, it opens the, the path in a beautiful way. I did just fairly recently come back from some time in Burma. I was helping <coughs> again with this that retreat I mentioned. And uh, I go almost every winter to, uh, to Burma when I can and uh, help with that retreat. I also am working with a couple of small uh, humanitarian aid projects there. Uh, one of them... I just recently got an email. It was part of my inspiration to speak on this subject. I, I got a, an, an email update from my friends. There's a group of us who raise money. We work through a small monastery there. And uh, my friends send out pictures and updates of what they've been spending the money on. And the most recent one, they had um, this whole project started when uh, the cyclone in 2008, a big cyclone hit that country and was very devastating there. Thousands and thousands of people killed and huge areas devastated, wiped out. And um, the area near this monastery, you know, the houses there are just very simple bamboo shacks and just blown away. (laughs) People with nothing. So they started this project. We we started it at that time to um, help rebuild just around the the environment around the monastery there. And uh, it's just grown since then and um, a lot of really great work. And it's one of those neat projects where, you know, I know everybody and 100%, you know, they're handing the money. There's no middle people. It's really a, a great project. And so this new uh, update I got, they had had um, asked the monks who were going an alms round in the area there to... Um, you know, if there were houses that were in really very poor shape you know, that they noticed. And, and so they had these sort of before and after pictures of, you know, there were shacks that had just two, two sides and then were open or were patched together with pieces of plastic and um, not something that most of us would look at and say it was a house. And so um, there was enough money to rebuild uh, quite a number of these houses for some very poor people there who are just getting by selling a few vegetables or some other small um, means of income. And um, it just was so heartening to me to see how, you know, it wasn't it's not a lot of money <laughs> to build one of these houses. And the, the uh, joy and delight 
um, on the faces of these people to get this kind of support. It was just very beautiful to see this. And to see, you know, the, these friends, Carol Wilson and uh, a couple of nuns you may know, of, uh, Viren, Venerable Varanyani and uh, Da Aryanyani, uh, Narayan from uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, friends of mine. And, and there's other pictures of all of them with their arms around these people and just a very beautiful expression of this practice of generosity in that very poor country. And I'm struck so much when I spend time there by the kindness and generosity of the Burmese people. And, you know, it's, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, but it seems like anywhere you go, even with very poor people, they're always offering you some gift. So much generosity that just flows so naturally there. And of course, in those countries, the, the teachings are offered freely, as we've tried to do in the West, uh, in, in somewhat to, to the extent that, that it's possible here. The teachings are, are free there. The, dana, the monasteries and meditation centers are completely run on dana, so there's no charge. And people support them in, in the way like we do here with offering the meals and uh, through donations in that way. <clears throat> I have too many stories to get through this talk. <clears throat> There was a time when I was living as a monk in a monastery there, and, and uh, what you do as a monk is you, you go on alms round. That's right livelihood. And so you, you walk through the, the village neighborhood with a bowl and collect uh, food. Um, and that's how you help support yourself in the monastery. And um, it's a very direct connection with the with the live with the lay people in in that area, and there are very strict rules about how one does that. You you can't ask for anything. You can't go up to a doorway. You you stand in the road, and um, if someone sees you and feels so moved, then they can put something in your bowl. And um, you know you're very very um, restrained in the way that you would uh, collect alms in that way. And it was so inspiring to me to the way that alms were offered, often with such, I mean, sometimes very perfunctory, you know, just, okay, here's a monk, plop, spoon of rice, and uh, that's what you do. But um, in other cases, people would um, offer something, even something as simple as, you know, one tiny dried fish or uh, something like that with such care and... um, I don't know, it was so obviously a practice of giving that was um, not just because that's what you do in that culture. And there's, a, there's part of a chant that's done daily by the, by the monks and uh, nuns um, that's <clears throat> a reflection on the qualities of the triple gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And in the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha, there's one line that um, goes like this. It's anuttaram punyaketam lokasa. And that's something I've chanted a lot um, at times. And, and um, its translation is something like this, that they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world, for great goodness to arise. That This is one of the qualities of the sangha, 
of the ordained Sangha in this case. And, and I didn't really know quite what that might mean at times, you know, what would be this, why would they give occasion for, for incomparable goodness? And there's a lot of ways that one might think of that. But at that time, living in that way, I thought about one very specific way is, is a giving the opportunity for this very direct practice of generosity. And it seems so like such a beautiful, that there was this great incomparable goodness in that, in, in that lineage over time of, of giving occasion for this goodness to arise. And there was a time, during that time, where I was living just on this alms food one meal a day from, from what I could gather through the village. And <clears throat> I went on the same route every day at the same time. And so people got to know me and I got to know the, the people who I would, who would make the offerings. And there was one young woman who um, was there just about every day, really always there. And she was quite weak. She would come out to the, to the gate and, and put something in my bowl. And, um, and then as, as over time she became weaker and, and the family, if you're invited, you can go into the yard up to the house. And so they brought me in and then she would be standing closer and, and people were helping her stand. And then at a point she was sitting in a chair because it was too hard for her to stand. But she still wanted to, to make this offering. She, she held this as such a, um, uh, an important practice for herself. And, and then finally, at, at one day when I went, she wasn't there. And um, I found out that she had died. She had been battling cancer. She was in her 20s still. And, uh, but as long as she had the strength, she wanted to uh, make this part of her daily practice, this offering. This is such a beautiful, poignant gesture there. <clears throat> I have to cut this down a bit. The other half of the equation in practicing generosity is, is uh, receiving. And so much of the time for me living as a monk, especially, and at other times in Burma where, you know, I have more than, you know, you can be really poor here and go to Burma and you're really, really rich, just if you have enough money to get over there. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, even as a monk, there were resources I could have fallen back on that, that the people who were offering food to me, they didn't have that. And, and it was really humbling and, and, you know, it brought up a lot in me, you know, um, to be somehow worthy of this kind of offering. But there was the realization that, that these offerings were not personal. It wasn't about me. You know, I was a symbol of the triple gem. You know, that's what that was about. And it was that, that these people, it was a reflection of their faith, their understanding of the power and beauty of, this, of giving in this way. And, that, and in that way, then the, the giving and the gift and the receiver, that all were equally empty in that. That it was just this power of that gesture of heart and this faith in the triple gem. But it brought up a lot, you know, for me around habits around receiving, you know, and feelings of, of not being worthy, 
you know, or I, I don't deserve this, or, or in times of embarrassment, you know, we may have these kinds of habits around um, receiving. It can be interesting to look at, at our relationship to receiving offerings. And, you know, can we delight in the joy of, of the one who's making the gift? And in the, this connection and this ebb and flow of life, you know, sometimes we're giving, sometimes we're receiving. These are two sides of the same thing. And it's said that giving brings happiness in three times. That it brings happiness before we make an offering. When we think about doing it, we get happy. Oh, I'm about making the offering. And then happiness when we do it. And happiness afterwards when we think about what we've done. When we think about the gift that we've given. And we reflect on the goodness of that. And it is good to reflect on, on our goodness, on our wholesome, beautiful actions. You know, it's not in a way of some ego boost of saying, oh, look how, how good I am, of inflating ourselves in some, some unwholesome way or some kind of pride, but to really acknowledge and recognize the goodness and the beauty there. You know, and the Buddha re- encouraged us to reflect on our goodness in this way. And I think it's really a powerful and important thing to do. Especially because I think we're conditioned a lot of the time to, to see our failings and our lackings. So easily we can turn to that. We can see of all of our non-beautiful, unwholesome mind states and actions. Those are glaringly obvious, right? We can list those out easily. We can all come up with a big list of that stuff. But it's really good to bring our goodness to mind to really reflect on this and the power and beauty of that in the world. <clears throat> hmm. Okay, I'll tell one other good story. I, uh, there's a monk who's, I think he's 95 now. <laughs> and um, we, this is in Upper Burma, the Sagang Hills, and we've nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. I think he's probably the happiest being I've ever met. Someone once asked him why he was so happy and he said, I have no no aversion in my heart towards you or you or anyone, anywhere. If we can think of this as, as that this isn't arising in the mind stream, in the heart, what would that be like? And um, I I was going to give a talk on on Donna at the end of this retreat, I was managing it. This was years ago, uh, and I was there as the manager, and, and my friends and <coughs> cohorts there were going to go visit this this happy side on. Um, we just like to sit with him. He's he's someone that's worth going halfway around the world just to hang out with him for a little while, <coughs> just to sit in the same room. And um, so I said, No, no, I have. I want to think about you know what I'm going to say. And they said, no, you don't need to. Just come with us. So I said, okay, I'll go, but I want to ask Sayadaw a question. So um, <clears throat> we went in and paid respects. And I, I said, Sayadaw, I'm going to talk to the people at the retreat, the yogis, about uh, generosity, the practice of generosity. Do you have any suggestions um, what I might say? And he said, he said, I said, I'm talking about Donna. And he said, Donna, he likes his gestures wildly. He said, Donna, 
and then he reached down, there was a bowl of oranges, and he, he picked up oranges, and he started throwing the oranges at me, and he said, this is Donna. <laughs> and then he just gestured around, and said, this, all of this is Donna, everything here. And we said, without Donna, we wouldn't be here. None of this would be here. And I thought, okay, you know, yeah, he's a monk, and, and all of the, that place was offered by people, you know, he, where he lived was built through, through people's donations and their generosity. And so that's, that's clear, you know. But then I thought about my own life and how so much of, how my own life was so dependent and so based on the kindness and generosity of others, so much in my life. Really, you know, without Donna, without generosity, I wouldn't be there, wouldn't be anywhere. And I can think about that on so many levels. And, and I think all of us can reflect on our lives in that way and see how much truth there is to that. <clears throat> Never going to get through this. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes we think about giving and, and we can feel that somehow, somehow if we give, if we give, you know, that we'll be, we'll have less or that somehow will be diminished in some way, you know, that we, we don't, we can feel that we, we're, we don't have enough to give. And, but actually when we take this on as a practice, and it's not about quantities or how much or anything like that. It's not about stuff or what is given. It's this movement of the heart. And we actually find that the opposite is true and that, that by giving we are actually enriched and that, that this sense of inner abundance is developed through the action of giving itself. And this feeling that we have enough to share, even if it's just part of our last mouthful. You know, some movement of the heart in that way. This is a quotation from Lao Tzu I found that I think is, is quite lovely. It says, the sage never tries to store things up. The more he does for others, the more he has. The more he gives to others, the greater his abundance. And as I was saying, you know, this feeling of inner abundance is not based on some objective criteria in terms of, of material wealth. And, and clearly, you know, there's people who have lots of material wealth who, who feel a sense of inner poverty, you could say. They cling to what they have and they're, they're not able to, to feel this movement of heart. So it's not based on that. And, and as I've been talking about, you know, often those who are the poorest economically are the most generous of heart and spirit. <clears throat> One way we can con- connect to that feeling of inner abundance, this inner plenty, inner wealth, we can ask ourselves in any moment, what do I need right now, right now in this moment, to be happy, to feel content, to feel complete? You know, we're so conditioned through the culture, through advertising, bombarded with all these messages to convince us that we are lacking, you know, everything we don't have that we need. And that's the whole way advertising works. You need this, whatever it might be. And even if we don't buy into it on an intellectual level, it's, a, it's strong conditioning, as I was talking about earlier. But what do we really need in any moment to feel whole and complete? You know, when, when do we feel happy and whole and fulfilled? And often we find it's when things are simple and it's, it's you know, 
Maybe times on retreat when we tap into this feeling of deep contentment. It's not about anything that we're getting. You know, our life could be very, very simple. Times when we're living in a way that, you know, here, here it's pretty nice, but even here, by, by many people's standards, it's quite an austere life. Or certainly if you're living in a monastery in, in Asia, it's pretty s- simple and s- austere. And yet, times when I felt so happy and content with that simple life. This feeling of inner abundance, of inner wealth, it leads to, I think very naturally, this beautiful quality of heart of gratitude arises very naturally from that. And when we give, when we practice dana, generosity, then feelings of gratitude arise so naturally out of that. And, and these are kind of different aspects of the same thing, I think. And we all have a lot to be grateful for in our lives. So much, simple things. And, and it's good to take time, you know, how often do we actually take time to count our blessings? As I was saying, you know, we can see what we don't have so easily, but... How often do we just reflect on all that we do have? Someone once told me they had a practice where they, they thought of five things every day to be grateful for. And just, you know, we, we're warm and it's cold outside and we have food and we get to be on retreat. That is really great. You know, to have that. That's something I'm so grateful for when I get that chance. You know, the chance, the interest, and the opportunity to hear the Dhamma in whatever way that may come to us. <clears throat> this is a quotation from a, a priest named uh, Henri Nguyen. He said, In the past, I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of a gift received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all that I am and all that I have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. Mm. <clears throat> and you know, it's not, as I was saying, it's not about the what of giving. And there's so many ways that, that this movement, this generous movement of the heart can express itself, you know, maybe it is materially when that's appropriate and when possible and time and energy, ways that we might serve in communities. Sometimes if we just let someone be who they are, that's a huge gift. And our conduct, our sila, our commitment to non-living harmlessly, that's a huge gift. That leads to one of the greatest, greatest of all gifts, the gift of fearlessness. You know, if we can offer this gift of fearlessness to the world, that people know that we, we want the best for them, that, that we won't harm them, that's huge. That's a beautiful, huge gift. That people would, we become a beacon of light, a, a place of safety, a haven, a refuge in the world when we give this gift of fearlessness through our conduct. And the Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. This is from the Sutta Nipata. 
Giving food, one gives strength. Giving clothing, one gives beauty. Giving lamps, one gives sight. Giving a vehicle, one gives ease. Giving shelter, one gives all. But one who offers the Dhamma, the excellent teaching of the Buddha, is the giver of the deathless. And this gift of the deathless, this gift of the path to freedom, to liberation, this is the greatest gift, it's said. And this is the gift that we're all giving through our practice, through our commitment to sila, to ethical conduct, through this, this intention to cultivate wisdom and compassion and love. This is a beautiful, powerful, perhaps the most powerful gift of all, a gift of our practice. <clears throat> So I'll end with this uh, one more quotation from the Sutta Nipata. One who shares his wealth with some, but does not gladly give to others, is only like a local shower. In such a way, the wise describe this one. But one who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there, out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give, This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down refreshing water everywhere, drenching the highlands and the lowlands too, generous without distinctions. Just as a pot filled with water is, if overturned by anyone, pours out all its water and does not hold any back. Even so, when you see those in need, whether low, middle, or high, then give like the overturned pot, holding nothing back. Generosity, kind words, doing a good turn for others, and treating all people alike. These bonds of sympathy are to the world what the axle pin is to the chariot wheel. So we'll have a quiet moment here and let these words drift away. And uh, I'll ring the bell and then we'll we'll chant the verses of sharing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.